Welcome to episode 37 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is November 22nd, and in our episode, we're going to talk about a theme a number of our guests have mentioned over the last few months, local effects in one city during a pandemic. Right. This is something that's come up over and over again in our conversations, the the need to zoom in from the big story and understand local experiences during a pandemic as we've actually seen in last week's episode with Katie Foss. So to continue the conversation about this theme, we thought to return to discussing the effects of COVID since we thought it might be useful to talk about local experience as it is happening to us and many of our listeners right now. Our guest today is AJ Herman. AJ is the Director of Policy for Kansas City, Missouri's Mayor, Quentin Lucas, and has been helping manage the city's COVID-19 response since March. Prior to joining the mayor's office, he worked as a senior program officer at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation and earlier as a managing consultant at the Manhattan Strategy Group. AJ holds a master's in public policy from the University of California, Berkeley, and a BA from Colby College. He's worked as a consultant on dozens of projects for public sector and nonprofit organizations on issues such as economic development, housing, labor, education, financial inclusion, and urban planning. Now, I should note for openness and transparency that AJ and I did go to Colby College together, which is why we threw in that plug, and it's also where we met. And then a few years later, he was my roommate in Washington, D.C., before I went to grad school, and he eventually moved to Kansas City. So hi, AJ. I think I was going to actually say that the most important part of the bio that I overlooked is that I lived uh, two doors up from Merle Eisenberg for two years in Washington, D.C. in the late 2000s, so I'm glad you got that plug in there. Do what I can. So as Merle noted at the beginning, we've been thinking more and more about how to frame pandemic narratives, both past and present, since even before COVID. And it seems quite obvious now, certainly in retrospect, that your own local context, so things such as the community where you live or your racial, ethnic, and economic backgrounds are key factors in whether you have or will get COVID and how you experience this pandemic. So in the conversation today, we thought it might be a good idea to talk about a mid-sized, diverse city and see how these factors are actually playing out on the ground. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Lee. It's a topic we actually talked about in two podcasts, actually way back in April, even before these things were, I think, very obvious to us. These were with Michelle Smirnova and Fuchsia Hoover. Since those podcasts, those issues, though, have become more apparent, and I know a lot more work needs to be done both in terms of historical pandemics and today's COVID-19 on this topic. And speaking of local experiences, Lee, what's happening in Israel these days? Last you updated us, the COVID numbers had gotten better. So have you managed to keep that down? Right. So numbers here are stable. We still have lots of discussions about how and when to, to open schools, for example. But if to get back to numbers, So the past month had about 1,000 infections per day, while two months ago, we actually peaked at 12,000 infections per day. So it's actually manageable now, I'd say. The political instability is increasing here. There probably are going to be elections much sooner than later. It's not entirely clear when, but at recent days, it's pretty clear that elections are going to be accelerated. And finally, my daughter is sick again with fever for a couple of days now, and she's not going to daycare. But fortunately, this time, both myself and my wife are okay. 
so what about you, Merle? What's what's new in Annapolis? Yeah, so numbers around the US and in Maryland are getting exponentially worse. And everyone seems to basically agree on that point and then agree that they're almost not going to do anything. So when numbers get worse, do you see people actually changing their behavior? So as I say, leaving the house more, eating outside less, going to shopping less? It's tough to tell. As I said a couple of weeks ago, pretty much everyone when they're just walking in our suburban neighborhood now are wearing masks, which was not the case, I would say three or four months ago. I mean, as I've discussed many times, you can just cross the street, right? So the mask wearing, you know, you're like 40 feet from someone, but everyone is now wearing masks for the most part. So that's definitely the difference. And then I guess the two things I've noticed recently is one, the church down the street from us still holding services. So, you know, that's interesting to see. And then we bought a cheap fire pit for the backyard. So we had some people over and lit, you know, a mini bonfire and stayed away from them uh, and had some nice drinks out back. All outside? Yeah, all outside, of course, you know, 10, 15 feet away from people. But it was, you know, nice to light some stuff on fire, as everyone likes to do, I think. And AJ, uh, what's the latest in Kansas City? So I think it's similar to what you described in... uh... Maryland. Um, we actually just uh, announced a new emergency order that went effect on Friday, which limits bars and restaurants. They have to close at 10 p.m., limits gatherings to no more than 10 people, reduces capacity in gyms and a few other places, and expanded our mask order, which was inside to be a little bit more strict and also apply outside in places where you can't maintain social distancing as well. Um, like the rest of the U.S., we've seen a pretty large increase in cases over the last month or two and deaths, our hospitals were getting full. So that was part of why we needed to start to move on an emergency order. Personal note, just similarly to Merle, uh, doing a lot of fire pits lately. So I've been smelling a lot of my clothes smell like wood smoke because it's sort of the only way you can hang out with people now that it's getting cold is to go hang out in someone's backyard with a fire. So, so when you say that you guys are using emergency orders, is there anything that's actually closed, like completely closed? No, um, to be uh, blunt about it. So there's a lot of things that are pretty heavily restricted in restaurants capacity. And I guess there is the hours limits to things that are, you know, you're not allowed to be open if you're a bar after 10 p.m. Um, I think a consistent challenge throughout COVID, um, and we did have a pretty strong stay-at-home order for the first month, but just figuring out that balance between what are the things that are extremely dangerous and also what is the community willing to accept in terms of restrictions, uh, as well as also what can the city do when it's surrounded by other jurisdictions and other states with different rules. Um, Because obviously if the city has a bunch of things closed but they're open a few blocks away, that makes things difficult from a implementation standpoint. So I think that's a nice segue. You just mentioned a couple of issues, but maybe you could give our listeners a brief background on Kansas City, the size of the city, the demographics, if you want to throw in something about the economy uh, and politics, that would also be. Yeah, I'm happy to. So Kansas City has got slightly less than 500,000 people. Kansas City, Missouri, that's important because a lot of folks get confused. So the center, the main CBD and biggest city is in Missouri. I live in Missouri, but it's the metro with the Kansas City as the center of has about two and a half million people, um, about a third of which live in Kansas, um, and about two thirds of which live on the Missouri side, either in the city or in some of the suburban counties. 
that's pretty notable because kind of like the Washington DC region, we're a metro that is across two state lines, obviously with two different governors. Governor of Kansas is a Democrat, the governor of Missouri is Republican, um, as well as multiple overlapping counties on each side. And in both states, counties have the ability to set their own health rules in both Missouri and Kansas. And Kansas City, the city that I work for, is considered to be a county because we have our own health department sort of for those purposes. Um, so that's just important context that we can get into and in, in terms of how orders and how COVID plans are implemented in the region. But coming back to the broader picture, about two and a half million people, a mix of suburban and urban. Kansas City, the city itself is reasonably diverse. It's about 52, 53% white, 30% African-American, 10 to 15% Hispanic. Parts of the city are quite suburban in character because um, the city expanded into some of its suburbs in um, the 70s. Those parts tend to be a little bit more conservative, but the city itself is actually reasonably liberal in a conservative state. I think it's about 65, 70% democratic if you look at the presidential election results. Uh, many of our suburban counties are a lot more conservative, especially the further out you go. Um, though there are some, most notably Johnson County, Kansas, which is our biggest suburban county on the Kansas side, very similar to Fairfax County in Virginia. Um, if any of your listeners are familiar with the D.C. region, it's a very affluent county that actually flipped over the last 15 years and voted for um, Biden in the last presidential election. So you're sort of moderate Republican counties. Um, but it's an interesting patchwork that's, I think, representative of the country in general. So does Kansas City have a single mayor in both states? Yeah, so it's interesting. There's So Kansas City, Missouri, uh, where I work for, has one mayor, uh, Quentin Lucas. He's been mayor for about a year and a half um, since August of last year. But then there's also, confusingly, a Kansas City, Kansas, which is a completely separate jurisdiction that's a lot smaller. It's about 150,000 people that has its own mayor um, and government. But there's, just to give a sense of how close the cities are. Um, I actually live about five blocks from Kansas. You can literally see from the room I'm recording, if you looked out my back window, you can see the University of Kansas Hospital, which is uh, the University of Kansas's medical school, which is in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, there's one street that's just a two-lane street with houses on either side. It's called State Line Road that separates, at least in this part of the city, Kansas City, Kansas, from Missouri. But there's completely different governments in both places. So we have no authority over the Kansas side. Kansas side has no authority over Kansas City, Missouri. And that makes for an interesting patchwork of regulations because you have both states, um, which have largely chosen, um, except at the very beginning in Kansas, the way both states have approached it has been to essentially let local governments set their own rules. And that's really at the county level, though, again, um, Kansas City, Missouri, it's sort of considered to be an own county for some purposes, not for others. So we have been able to set our own rules. So that means that literally across the street, you could have completely different rules in many parts of the metro. So things such as police and infrastructure would be different between both sides. Yep. Um, there, yes, that's correct. There's some regional coordination on things like there's a regional 911 system and there is a sort of, it's called the Mid-America Regional Council. It's sort of a, a coordination body that does help try and coordinate all across a lot of things with governments, but generally it's all voluntarily whether folks want to cooperate with one another in completely different jurisdictions. Just one other maybe baseline question. Could you give us maybe some of the 
big industries that are in Kansas City aside from the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs? Sure. Um, so Kansas, it's interesting because we're it's actually a pretty big logistics hub. Um, there's a couple of railroads that Kansas City Southern notably that is based here. Um, there's a, also a history of technology, um, Sprint, which was originally bought by T-Mobile and no longer exists, but um, was headquartered in Overland Park, Kansas, which is the largest suburb um, in Johnson County. Um, and there's still a lot of employees in tech there. Garmin um, is also based in the Kansas side in the suburbs. Um, we're also a large regional healthcare hub relevant for COVID um, because we've seen our hospitals getting full partially because we're getting a lot of transfers from some of the more rural counties um, in both Kansas and Missouri. So it's a pretty reasonably diversified economy. There's a lot of services, some engineering firms, things like that. So before moving on to discuss COVID, could you maybe say a bit about immigration or emigration to and from the city? I mean, how was it before COVID? Yeah, um, so Kansas City's actually been growing, um, especially in the urban core, which has not been true in a lot of our other sort of peer cities or in the Midwest. Um, I'll give a good example, St. Louis, across the street from Kansas City. I think its population has dropped from all close to a million to 300,000 in the last 50 or 60 years. So similar story to Detroit and St. Louis, whereas Kansas City, we're a little bit down from what the city was at its peak, but we're pretty close to what it's been. And it's actually been growing over the last 20 years or so. We've actually had a, quite a bit of redevelopment downtown. Diversity-wise, we have a reasonably large uh, Hispanic population. Um, that's actually especially true in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, I think it might be close to majority Hispanic at this point. And there are certain parts of Kansas City, Missouri, that are heavily Hispanic. Um, we also have rather large Vietnamese immigrant population and a few others as well. We're probably less diverse than, you know, a city like Houston or Atlanta or obviously our coastal hubs, but it's certainly a reasonably diverse metro, especially by the standards of sort of the broader area we're in. So to shift to COVID in Kansas City, could you just maybe lay out for us, when did the city decide to formulate a COVID plan and maybe just who did it? And then we'll get into more specifics on what and how it developed over time. Yeah, it's interesting because I can, I mean, I can remember it very well. There was a meeting I was part of in late February, I believe, or maybe very early March, where it was clear that COVID was going to be becoming an issue, but it was unclear how widespread it was in the U.S. yet. Um, so I think this is probably, there had been cases in Seattle, probably some in New York, though we didn't realize how bad it was. Um, and we actually called together mayor our office called a meeting with essentially the heads of all of the city departments the city manager the police department the health department um, fire department and it was sort of i remember thinking to myself in that meeting this feels like one of those disaster movies when like you're having the meeting with like everyone around the giant table and like this feels really weird and also everyone you could tell everyone was sort of I don't want to say acting but i mean a little bit like what are we doing here right like no one's ever really dealt with something like this and so that was just sort of a plan for, you know, where are we headed? How are we going to coordinate? And then within two weeks of that meeting, um, the first sort of orders we put into place were, I can't remember the exact dates, but it's right around, right after the NBA shutdown, which I think was March 11th in the U.S., which is sort of, I know, a, a point in time when a lot of people in the U.S. sort of got very serious about it. Kansas City is actually the host of the Big 12 basketball tournament, which is a rather large college basketball tournament that was actually started that weekend. They actually played, I believe, the first couple games. 
and then voluntarily actually before our order went into place basically shut it all down um, and that weekend was the first time we had you know following what we'd seen in a lot of the rest of the country i think we put a limit on gatherings of i think a thousand people maybe 500 um, and then from there things progressed very quickly where within a week or two we were shutting down bars and restaurants for indoor dining, putting capacity restrictions, things like that. Notably, I'll actually say early on, um, we did move pretty fast. So we actually put in our first orders before there was any confirmed cases in the city itself. That was because we were seeing cases in our suburban counties and it was pretty clear that if they were there, they were almost certainly in the city too. So it was sort of an attempt to get ahead of the curve, which I think we were actually pretty successful and because the first wave in Kansas City was pretty mild. We had a few hundred cases, um, some deaths, but sort of March and April in Kansas City were, as part of our first shutdown were actually went pretty well for us. To take things back to that meeting for a moment, when you said that nobody really knew what to do and so, were there any radical ideas that were raised in that meeting? I think, you know, our health director, um, to his credit, he's had a lot of experience. He's been, I can't think, a health director for 10, 15 years and is kind of well-respected. And he, I think, was pretty clear that, hey, like, this might be in a situation where we're heading for some sort of shutdown or some sort of order. So I think people weren't necessarily completely shocked by that. At least I wasn't because I'd been reading about what was happening in Seattle and San Francisco and a few of the other cities that were heading in that direction. Um, so I don't think there was anything that was that insane, but it was, it was surreal was more the way I'd put it. It's sort of like kind of unbelievable that we were having that conversation in, you know, just given the lack of sort of precedence for it in the US, at least in you know my knowledge or the knowledge of anyone in the room, I think. So could you maybe flesh out for us briefly what the actual shutdown plan looks like? I mean, are we talking about a five bullet points on a piece of paper? Are we talking about, at least in the initial stage, I assume it's grown over time, but what did that first piece of paper look like and how was it implemented? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in Missouri, um, mayors and public health directors, which are usually at the county level, but were considered to be a county for that purpose, have the authority, broad authority to essentially emergency powers to do, not, I wouldn't say anything, but close to anything they believe is necessary to protect public health. Um, I think those powers initiated, you know, in the 19th century from outbreaks of cholera and then obviously the pandemic in 1918, I think. Um, but they hadn't been used in, I don't think, many, many, many years. But so we literally, the mayor has the authority to essentially declare a state of emergency. And then with that, set any number of rules they believe are necessary to protect public health. And so that's essentially what we did is declared a state of emergency due to the COVID situation. And then from there, it really has evolved over time. Um, so we looked at, in the beginning, it was very much, let's limit event sizes. And then soon after that, the basic things were, let's make sure that we're closing indoor dining because it seemed to be dangerous. And then also trying to limit kind of non-essential activity, like uh, what a lot of cities across the country were doing. And we really did model it. We, every time we've had the fortune in Kansas City of sort of being a little bit behind some of our coastal cities as well as other jurisdictions. So we really were able to look at in each case, what is it that other people are doing? What seems to be working? Where are they getting pushback? And kind of model it based on that. Um, so that first order was really just size limits and then indoor dining. And then from there, it progressed to a 
a broader kind of a shutdown of all non-essential activities, um, you know, with essential activities being things like going to the grocery store and, and things like that. So when you formulated this original plan, did you start getting pushback from constituent groups? Yeah. So I'd say the first couple of weeks, few weeks, people were, we didn't get too much pushback. We got some, but I think people were quite scared at the time, especially given what was happening in New York. It was sort of foremost on a lot of people's minds where it was clear that a lot of people were dying and there was concern that that would happen in the, you know, across the U.S., after those first few weeks, the pushback started getting stronger, um, some of which I think honestly was a little bit deserved. So, you know, some of our non-essential, quote unquote, businesses, you know, places like small retail stores, things like that were sort of saying, you know, if we have a couple people in a shop. How is that not allowed when you have still have a few hundred people in a grocery store? But then there also was sort of more of a, you know, civil liberties kind of pushback that we started seeing more strongly. Um, notably also, I'll say something that has been true from the very beginning of this in Kansas City. I remember very distinctly on St. Patrick's Day, which was about a week after our order went into place, Kansas City on, on the Missouri side, but parts of the city actually surround other cities. Um, so they're that are under the jurisdiction of their counties. So Kansas City is across multiple counties where sort of the city is half of the county, but outside of the city, the county government has authority. And a couple of our counties are quite conservative and actually had very limited rules in place because we did not have a statewide order at the time, especially on St. Patty's Day. And there was literally, we had shut down bars in Kansas City, but there was one particular jurisdiction that there was only a few bars there, but they literally were all advertising kind of St. Patty's Day parties come to avoid the shutdown at our bars, um, which is obviously concerning from a public health perspective, um, but also makes it really difficult on the city for our business owners because they were saying, well, we're shut down and all of our customers are still going just right across the border to this bar. So essentially we're losing out on business and people are still gonna get sick. So what are we accomplishing here? That story has been a consistent challenge throughout this whole year in Kansas City. Lee, don't you love American political jurisdictions? It sounds like a nightmare, really. I have no idea how that, how can you function with so many different jurisdictions? It's pretty unbelievable. So I, I will say like for the most part early on, there was, we were able to get pretty broad consistency across the generally where the orders were. It wasn't a hundred percent, you know, at least in the core parts of our cities, there's a few very outlying suburban regions where there maybe weren't the same rules, but in most of the city there was, but what you basically have seen is over time and continues to be true now the sort of more conservative and the more suburban or rural a jurisdiction is, or the higher percentage of a jurisdiction that has that component, the less likely they are to impose strong restrictions. So a great example right now is with our latest order, most of the region has matched what we have right now um, in Kansas City, but um, Johnson County notably, which is in Kansas, which is you know, generally affluent, as I said earlier, but also has some conservative elements to it. So the recommendations we have in place now came at sort of a un unanimous recommendations by all of the regional health directors and Johnson County essentially said, decided to ignore some of those. So like we closed bars at 10, um, Johnson County decided to extend that to midnight. We have a 10 person gathering limit. They made it 50 and exempted restaurants, bars and almost any entertainment venue from that essentially rendering it pretty weak. And so that's just one example that's happened repeatedly throughout sort of this year. There was one point where I think hairdressers were open, you know, 
I forgot exactly where, but you know, hairdressers were open on one side and not on another. And then of course, in that situation, because it's such a small metro, that can be as simple as walking across the street, literally in some cases, you know, there's sort of a question of what you're actually accomplishing when you have half of the region has one rules, but the other half have another. So it's always sort of a race to the bottom situation to some extent, because, you know, if it's only one city or one county, maybe you can get away with having the rest of the region stronger um, or more strict, but otherwise you're essentially only hurting your businesses without as much health benefit as you'd otherwise get. How big is identity in these different counties and neighborhoods maybe, or parts of the city? It's a really good question. Um, so, I mean, I think it's real. It's interesting to me because I, I moved here. I'm not originally from here as Merle noted in the intro. Um, I grew up in California and then moved here in 2013, but there actually is a long history between Missouri and Kansas and the border wars, putting on my, my history hat a little bit. Um, but before the Civil War, there was literally a, um, essentially a guerrilla war fought between Missouri and Kansas over whether I think Kansas would be a slave state um, as Missouri was at the time. And there is actually a long history of rivalry between the two states. So folks in Kansas and on Missouri side sort of do have a little bit of in some areas do have some, there's some identity that goes with it. Um, you also have just the standard, like you'd see in the rest of the US, um, you have, especially our more suburban, the counties that Kansas City is a part of, but the more rural areas are, tend to be more conservative. So you have your sort of more conservative identity, um, not wanting big government, whereas the city is seen as sort of a liberal bastion where we have more public services and you know all that would typically come with that. There also is a little bit of, you know, the mayor of Kansas City as being the largest, just because it's the largest city in the metro, I think gets a disproportionate amount of media attention. Um, I think that's also, I mean, selfishly, I'll say our office is pretty good at making policy and we have a really good comms department. And some of, especially our suburban leaders will sort of say, well, we don't want to do what Kansas City is doing just because Kansas City is doing it. We want to sort of um, tow our own path. And that, that dynamic has played out at times. So you mentioned you have a series of plans. How often are you revising them and changing them and updating them due to the ongoing, you know, various waves or situations as they play out? Yeah, it sort of evolved over time. In the beginning, we were changing things quite regularly, you know, every week or two weeks as sort of things progressed. And then we, we did loosen it um, starting in the spring because our cases were going down. Our cases started ticking back up in July um, or late June, early July. And that was the point at which we did a mandatory mask order, which there is no mandatory mask order in the state of Missouri and there never has been. And we don't expect there ever will be. And then actually from July until I'd say a couple of weeks ago, we were generally under that order. Reasoning being that almost because there was no statewide mask order, because most of our suburban counties had essentially no rules, we didn't see that much value or compliance really in if we were to become more strict um, with what was going on. So we were sort of focusing more on the messaging side of things, encouraging people to be safe and to not go out when they could avoid it. I'll note just, we've actually, there's actually been two recall campaigns launched against the mayor. Um, both of them failed, but those were explicitly led by essentially anti-maskers who felt that we were, the mayor was infringing on constitutional rights. So just to give an um, example of sort of how crazy some of the pushback has been. So what exactly is that? Recalling a mayor? Does that mean that you just go for another elections or you 
bring some someone else instead? Yeah, so a lot of jurisdictions in the U.S. have this ability to do this. And most famously, I believe, Gray Davis, when I was uh, in high school in California, who was a California governor, got recalled and was replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, I think is the most classic example of this. But essentially, most jurisdictions, usually what it involves is you have to collect a certain number of signatures from registered voters. And in Kansas City, I believe it's 10% of the amount of the number of voters who voted in the last election for whatever office you're trying to recall someone from. So basically 10%, you have to get signatures equal to 10% of the voters in the last mayoral election. Um, And what that does is it varies a little bit by state, but in Kansas City, what that would do is if they were successful in that, that would force an election, um, which would be a few months in the future, where there would be a sort of yes no question on should the mayor be recalled and then as well i think if that were to be successful then there would be another mayoral election um interestingly where he could be a candidate and so it's possible he could be recalled and then run again that how that process works varies a little bit by state and jurisdiction so you mentioned you have a really good comms department aj how are you communicating these plans and then we can talk about maybe enforcing them, which I imagine is a fun operation. Merle, you seem pretty excited about enforcement. When we get there, I'll explain my logic here. Uh, so on the communication side, um, basically since the beginning, the way we've kind of approached it is we've rolled out each new emergency order. So that's the mechanics, I guess, of how we do it is that there has to be a new emergency order, which replaces the previous one. So it's literally a, you know, a, a document that is essentially like legislation saying here are the new rules or the rules that are continuing. And then we have a press conference to announce that. That's typically, we try to give folks at least a few days to up to a week of advanced warning. So it's not you know, at midnight tonight, all bars have to close because that obviously causes problems for businesses and you know, folks will run to the grocery store and things like that. Um, And then there's a lot of messaging that goes out on, um, we have our city communications department and we've created for each new order kind of an FAQs page. That's something that I've actually been heavily involved with where it's sort of commonly asked questions about the order. We then update that on an ongoing basis um, as we inevitably get questions about sort of the mechanics. I'll give you a good example in our latest order. Um, because we, we shut down bars and restaurants at 10 p.m., there was questions about, does that mean literally shut down or just uh, dine-in service? And the answer was dine-in service. Obviously, you can still do delivery or carry out after 10 p.m., but that wasn't explicitly clear in the language. So that's something that we kind of evaluate over time. Um, the city has a 311 um, service, which I think is quite common in the U.S. now, where essentially it's you can call and get information about any city services, and so that's been heavily utilized by residents who have questions about what the rules are, what businesses are. But those would likely be relevant for reactive people, so people who like hear something or want to know more and then call three one one or whatever. But what about passive people, or maybe people who don't listen to news or don't aren't connected to social media? How how, how are they supposed to know all this? Yeah, that's, that is a great question. And it's something we think about all the time is, you know, the folks who are going to be anti-maskers, they're going to be anti-maskers probably no matter what we tell them. There's plenty of information out there that they're choosing to, for whatever reason, ignore the scientific evidence. There's also probably high information, high, you know, voters or residents who are going to be paying attention regardless of what we say. So then really what we're trying to do with a lot of our messaging is get those folks who maybe are less engaged or less inclined to use traditional media. So a few ways we do that. 
Um, one is mayor has been really active on going on various kind of maybe non-traditional media sources that can include kind of gospel radio um, stations, country radio stations. Um, he regularly appears on a more conservative talk radio station in Kansas City. That's actually been true before COVID as well, but sort of as a way to try to, you know, just share information with people who may not be listening to your NPR or your local newspaper. But to be honest, it's a challenge. I mean, it's something we've been struggling with throughout this is sort of how do we get the message out for folks who are maybe just lower information, less connected to government in general. The reason why I was curious about enforcement, Lee, is that in our pre-modern historical period, we often talk about, oh, the state does this, the state does that, but they can't enforce things. And I think one thing we've seen during COVID perhaps is that city governments, state governments can put out orders, but they don't exactly want to send cops or say the National Guard into the local barbershop to enforce things. So that's why I'm curious to hear how this is actually playing out, you know, in 2020. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been a great question and been something we've been struggling with and grappling with this whole time. So, I mean, obviously, you know, with some of the racial protests um, about police brutality and police overreach that we've seen across the U.S. and in Kansas City, like that's something that's been top of mind to begin with this year. So for the most part, enforcement has been with our health department, and it's been almost entirely focused at businesses um, and almost entirely focused at egregious offenders. So examples are we have shut down a few bars that were just blatantly ignoring some of the capacity limit rules or rules on sort of masking people wearing masks when they weren't actively eating. Um, there's also been a couple other business establishments where they basically got multiple complaints about folks not wearing masks is sort of the most common one. And the health department was able to shut them down because they have authority to pull permits and things like that. So you would shut places down instead of find them? Typically, that's how we'd approach it. I think there may have been some fines as well. But yeah, I think it's typically been a shutdown. Yeah, that's very interesting because here the norm is to just find people. And if you want to scare people, you just raise the fines and you find them again. But shutting down is, even though Israel is a much more centralized state compared to, to the situation you're telling us about Kansas City, they still prefer not to shut down places. Yeah, and I, I mean, to be honest, I think every single place that's been shut down got multiple warnings before that happened. And I think it's part of the calculus is that a shutdown is essentially equivalent to a fine when you think about a business being unable to operate. I will say too, on the individual level, individuals can theoretically be assessed fines, for example, for not wearing masks under the order, but we've chosen not to enforce that basically for all of the reasons that you'd be worried about sort of overreach and you know how that would actually be in practice enforced and who would be subject to that. And that's, I think, been true almost across the U.S. Though maybe there's some examples where that's in some coastal cities where there's been at least some fines. But I think you've seen the pushback there has been stronger than, I think the benefits to actually enforcing at that level are not necessarily worth the actual added benefit of compliance you'd get. So maybe we can shift now from kind of plans and that type of topics to what have been the effects of COVID in the city so far? And have you had multiple waves? I imagine you're going through one right now. Yeah, so for a while, Kansas City was pretty lucky in that we had, um, the city has, we're one of the most highest gun violence cities in the US. We're actually on going to set a record for homicides this year. We're 
probably going to get close to 200. And for a long time, more people had died of COVID. Sorry, had died from gun violence in Kansas City than from COVID, um, which was a talking point among some of the anti-shutdown kind of anti-order folks is why don't you pay more attention to gun, like why aren't we shutting down the city for gun violence is sort of the, the question they ask because more people had actually died from gun violence than COVID. Um, with our latest wave, that is no longer the case. We're now, I think, up to close to 260 deaths um, from COVID, and we expect that to increase probably pretty dramatically over the next few weeks at least. That's one of the reasons why we sort of chose to act this week is that there had been we have by far the most cases and most hospitalizations now than we have at any other point um, in the crisis. And that's why we thought it was important to act again this time. So when you think about the effects of COVID and the successive plans that you've formulated, would you say that these plans were successful? And if so, or if not, so how can you tell whether the plan is successful or not? It's a great question. Um, so I, I think we've generally, so I'll say that one thing we look at, the city does a resident survey every couple of months where we actually ask questions about a whole range of city services. But in this year, we've been asking specifically about, do you trust, I think it's somewhat or a lot, um, various elected officials with their COVID response. So they ask at the federal, state, and local. Um, and that has dropped over time across the board but the city leadership have been consistently ranked, I think 20 or 25 points above national and state leadership on that question. So that's a sign that I think people kind of trust that the city leaders know what they're doing. Um, I think in a state with no mask rules, that's somewhat understandable. And obviously we can get into the federal response or lack of it, but I think there's similarly frustration around that. So I think we're looking at sort of, you know, are folks trusting what we're saying, but then also obviously are there, how are our case trends going? So in the beginning, um, we saw cases go up and then start to go down after we had our first sort of set of orders. Similarly, when we first imposed our mask requirement in July, we had about a week or two after that cases started dropping, which I think has been borne out in a lot of other places as, after they've imposed it. Um, so I think for this latest order, what we're hoping to see um, understanding that it'll probably take a couple of weeks just from the nature of you know what the infection timeline is and when these things start to take effect. But we're hoping after Thanksgiving, the cases will start to drop, that we're obviously very worried about the impacts of Thanksgiving and especially informal family gatherings and what the impact of that's going to be on our cases. And that's true across the U.S. We're doing a lot of strong messaging on, hey, you know, maybe stay home. Make sure you have small gatherings. If you are going to get together, do it in a backyard. Try to do it virtually. So we're hopeful people will listen to that, but we'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. So that's actually interesting. So, so part of the way in which you evaluate the plan is based on how people think about that plan. I mean, that's how you started. I think it's important. And there's, you know, something that has been, it's been interesting and something we've been consistently talking about in there's the theoretically in an ideal world what you should do, but you need people to comply with it and be with you. Um, a great example of this in, is in Kansas. The governor, who's a Democrat, did impose some stay-at-home orders and some statewide mask rules, and the Republican-controlled state legislature essentially rebelled against her, stripped her of her emergency powers so that now, or most of her emergency powers, so that at this point it's essentially up to local jurisdictions to impose their own rules reason that's important is that if because of you know for example the recall 
um, example given earlier, not that you want to be afraid or necessarily don't do things because of a small group of people, but if no one's listening to you and no one's complying, what are you actually accomplishing? And so I think there's value in sort of understanding, like, does the community generally trust and believe in what you're doing? At least, you know, not every, you're never going to get everyone, but if you get a substantial percentage, that's good because it means they're more likely to listen to what you're saying and to follow what you're doing, especially in a world which is what we're in, where we're never going to be kind of draconian enforcement, where we're going to be arresting people or even fining people for small violations. So the only real thing you have is the power of persuasion and trust. I just want to say that there's a very obvious point here, which is how far various Republicans will go to basically twist their own logic to meet their own ends. You know, you gave the Kansas example, but the obvious natural contrast here would be Texas, right? Where in Texas, these local, say El Paso, most famously, put in pretty strong restrictions in terms of mask mandates because localities are supposed to be able to determine what's happening there, which is obviously a very much a Republican, small C, small government view. And the mayor in Texas has basically gone to court to overrule all of that. So it's just a fascinating way in which this has nothing to do with principles whatsoever and purely just have to do with power and how you want to exercise it when it comes to COVID. Yeah, and I'll, I will say we're, we've been, you know, I guess comparatively lucky in Missouri in that the governor um, has preached personal responsibility and has neglected or declined to impose a statewide mask order. He has been consistent in allowing local jurisdictions to set their own rules. So we have been able to do whatever we think is right in Kansas City. Now, obviously, we still have the earlier issue I mentioned with the bars and St. Patty's Day, where because we don't have authority over the entire region and because there is no statewide rules, you end up with situations where some of our neighboring counties have essentially no rules, um, which makes things difficult. But at least we do have the ability to do what we think is best for Kansas City. I mean, so again, coming from outside the U.S. or as an external perspective, it seems like a much more consensus-based approach to governance than at least the norm here in Israel. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, it's, and I think, you know, the national conversation is, and this has been true in American politics for the last 20 years in general, but a lot of things have become nationalized and you see that that has effects locally, right? So the thing I'm describing with anti-maskers, I think was true in most of the country. It just happens that whatever sort of the balance of power is in your particular region. So a state like New York just happens to have more control in its urban areas. But if you went, you know, three or four hours north of New York City, you'd actually probably see a similar dynamic to what would play out in maybe 45 minutes or 30 minutes from where I sit right now. But it's the same sort of thing where you have, you know, it tends to be your more conservative, it's not monolithic, but it tends to be your more conservative folks, tends to be more Republicans or kind of skeptical of emergency orders and things like that. Um, and cities, urban areas, and Democrats tend to believe in the evidence and the science and the health officials more. So if we can turn now from you know, what you guys did during COVID to perhaps reactions to it. Could you maybe give us a couple examples of how you've maybe alleviated some of the economic hardships that people are experiencing? I mean, how are you targeting various, you know, sectors of the economy that are more hard hit by this? Yeah, so this actually is where um, the fragmentation of American politics gets even more crazy. So, 
uh, and I say this because it's very relevant for this question. So the way the uh, Federal CARES Act, which is the stimulus act that passed Congress in April, I believe, worked is that if you were a local jurisdiction with more than 500,000 people, you got direct funding from the federal government based on your population. Um, as of the 2019 census, which is what they use, Kansas City has 495,000 people. So we literally just missed out on direct federal funding. Importantly, the way that funding was allocated is it went to, in the state, the state allocated to the county governments. And so, as I mentioned earlier, Kansas City sits across technically four counties, but one of them, I think we only have something like 80 people live there. So really three counties. Um, one of those counties does have over 500,000 people, if you count its Kansas City residents. So they did get direct federal funding, but then the other counties got their money from the state. That has been incredibly tough for the city. So basically using the federal formula, if we had been at 500,000, I think we got would have gotten about $95 million from the federal government that could have gone towards COVID relief. So far from our counties, we've gotten about, I think it's about 30 million. So less than a third of what we otherwise would have gotten. Um, so that means we've just been unable to do a lot of the things we wanted to do. I mean, the majority of that has gone to our health department to help them with testing and contact tracing and things like that. We've also paid for increased overtime for police officers, firefighters. Um, our firefighters are also our EMTs, so they've obviously been working harder. Um, we have been do, able to do some targeted economic relief. We had a small business loan fund that we were able to put some funding into that was specifically targeted at businesses that were small businesses, so under, I think it was 25 employees and a pretty small revenue threshold that have been impacted by the shutdown. So essentially those non-essential businesses that couldn't operate still. Um, we've also, we have gotten some money from the federal government through some housing programs from HUD that we've been specifically targeting at homelessness prevention and rental assistance for low-income renters and also homeowner assistance to try to keep people in their houses so they wouldn't get evicted. Um, we've also worked with some of our community health centers to improve testing and access to testing and things like that. So we've been able to do some things on the margins, but I literally have, you know, we've sent letters to the counties asking for more money where we're essentially like, we'd like to do a lot more small business relief. We'd like to do a lot more social assistance, but because the counties control the funding um, in the U.S. cities can't, we have to balance our budget. We can't spend money we don't have. That's been a consistent and continued challenge for us. So just to clarify, Small business owners did not receive any support in Kansas City. So, no, they have received some. So the city itself, I think, gave out, it's somewhere around a million. Well, actually, in, it's actually close to two and a half million. But some of it's, one of some of what our counties did is when they, the ones that did give us money, which not all of them have, they basically said, here's some money, but you can only use it on Kansas City residents who live in our county, not the others which has been challenging. But so there's been about two and a half million dollars directly administered by the city that's gone out. Now there also are federal programs, um, the PPP program, which is administered by uh, the federal government, the Small Business Administration has given out millions, I mean, millions and millions of dollars in loans in Kansas City. The state has some programs. I just know we haven't given as much as other cities have over 500,000 people. So I've looked at like what cities like Dallas or 
San Antonio or Denver, which did get direct federal funding, were able to launch much more robust programs of their own. So in addition to what the federal government offers everywhere or what various states are offering. And that's what we've been unable to match in Kansas City, just because we haven't gotten nearly the support that larger cities have. Do you think perhaps that part of the response that's been a problem is that we've focused on economics or health, and this has been a driving force, right, that our perhaps capitalist-based system that's obsessed with profit and money has been driving these reactions too much? I mean, I think, honestly, I think there's some truth to that, but I think it's actually what's been shocking to me is the level of short-sightedness on the business side. So I think it's pretty clear that if we had a strong nationwide full shutdown, which we never had in the United States for you know a month or so in the beginning with targeted and strong support for folks, we'd be in a much better shape economically and health-wise, and that continues to be the case. I mean, we were struggling. One of the reasons we waited so long to begin to shut down bars and restaurants, and one of the reasons why we haven't gone further than where we're at right now, honestly, is that the city, because the city has no money, we can't actually offer any financial support to bars and restaurants. And so if you're a bar or restaurant owner, I understand that they're in a terrible position right now because they haven't been able to make as much money essentially all year. They're not getting any support from the federal government, which is really the only actor that has the resources to step in and do so. So it's sort of forcing the situation where there's a choice between health and economics. But I mean, given the billions of dollars the government's given to bail out the airline industry and a whole host of others, it, it wouldn't take that much to put us in a situation where we'd be able to sort of weather another shutdown, especially now that we know vaccines at least seem to be on the horizon. I mean, a couple month shutdown at this point nationally could save hundreds of thousands of lives probably and wouldn't require that much more money. And, you know, ultimately where most states are heading there anyway, where they're sort of doing this patchwork shutdown, but it's, we're sort of getting the worst of both worlds, right? Because we're not getting enough to really help with the health as much as we could. But then on the other side, we're not getting the economic support to enable people to stay home. And that's, I think, been a challenge in the U.S. throughout this whole year. Do you think a federal level shutdown for a month or so, like you said, do you think that would be a feasible solution? You know, I think legally probably not, um, just because the federal government, I don't think actually has the authority to do that. So it would come down to various states. And then you've seen repeatedly, you know, a lot of governors like Merle mentioned in Texas, um, South Dakota, I know their governor has been, despite the fact that they have, I think, more deaths and a case rate that's higher than pretty much anywhere in the country has refused to do pretty much anything on COVID. But I mean, the one thing I'll say is we never really tried it. And there was never really strong federal leadership to say, you know, there are ways you could structure it, whereas, you know, the federal government will give COVID relief only to states which follow the federally government CDC scientifically approved COVID plan, which could include shutting down. That's actually the reason why the drinking age is 21 in the US. There is no national drinking age, but the federal government ties highway dollars to having a drinking age is 21. So it essentially forces the state's hands where if you want to have a drinking age that's lower, you can do it. You just give up on a lot of resources. So I think there's ways you could have done it. I think the problem was we had a administration that was never really invested in a national plan and wasn't willing to, unwilling, unable to sort of get it together enough to try and organize something like that. So as we're nearing the end of the interview, 
I thought it might be useful to have maybe a couple of good micro level stories. So really ground basic level stories that you might be able to talk about from Kansas City. Yeah, I mean, I think a good illustration of just sort of the local impacts of this, there's actually a bar that's a couple blocks away from my house where there was, um, they closed early on in the crisis, but they were pretty early in reopening. And I remember walking by them and was sort of shocked by how many people were in there when they first reopened. They had a sign on the outside that said, you know, wear your mask if you're here. But there actually was a bartender who worked there who got COVID, died, he was 32. I believe, and I think it's just for me a real illustration of, you know, there's sort of been the anti-mask folks have been, the consistent message has been it's only old people dying, it's only people who are otherwise sick. And it was sort of an example, a perfect example of how, you know, our inability as a country and, you know, even locally to sort of really keep everyone on the same page led to real sacrifice for some folks. So that's just one personal example where it's, you know, it's, I walk past that, I run past that literally a few times a week. And I always think about that. You know, one thing that we've seen a lot in the news is there are two vaccines that have now been approved for vaccinating people. Perhaps, you know, the next three, six months or so could easily be rolled out. What's the Kansas city planning for this? Or are you waiting more details and the practicalities? I mean, how are you starting to think about implementing this? Yeah, so I mean, we've started to have some conversations um, with our health department, especially for how we're going to get the vaccine out to folks who um, maybe don't have health insurance or may not have the connections they otherwise would. Um, I'll note that our health department does have a pretty robust vaccinations program to begin with, just with standard childhood vaccinations. So that's something that's been helpful for us actually as a while the large city with a rather big health department, unlike some of our more rural counties, is we actually do have sort of resources available for that. The worry and the questions are sort of how vaccines are going to be distributed. My, our current understanding is that it's going to be done through the states. So we're in conversations with the state about what exactly that looks like, given sort of the challenges we had with the distribution of stimulus money, which that was where the state allocated to the counties and not to the city, there's a worry that something similar might happen where the city would sort of not either get the vaccines in a timely way or they would be distributed to our counties rather than to the city. So we're trying to get ahead of the curve on that to make sure that the city does have the ability to do it. It was also honestly part of the thinking around orders is sort of thinking about how long we have to be under this. And I think the hope is that, you know, we have to get through the winter, obviously. But that starting in early 2021, if vaccines do become available and as we get into warmer weather, which at least does seem to have some impact on transmission, given the patterns in the U.S., that we might be able to start loosening things um, as people get vaccinated. And that, you know, sort of part of our messaging is essentially to try to get people to hang on, is that there is a light at the end of the tunnel now. So, like, I understand for some folks, it was like, well, I'm not going to sit in my house for the next two years until there's a vaccine ready. So that's the risk I'm willing to take. But if it's a couple of months, maybe that risk calculus changes a little bit for some folks. The same thing with businesses too, not that it's been easy for them by any means. And we are seeing businesses go out of business and they will because of the next couple of months. But hopefully the fact that it's not an indefinite time, at least it appears that way, we'll, we'll be able to allow some folks to hang on until the vaccine's ready. Okay, so as we're coming to an end, I would want to ask you one last question though. What have you learned? What have you learned after dealing with COVID for 
more than half a year, maybe a bit less than a year. What have you learned about how to maybe help people? How can government, local government, be more efficient in situations such as COVID? What are the, the main takeaway points that you might suggest to all of our listeners? So one is, I think a couple of things. One is that I think, like a lot of crises, COVID has clearly shown and basically it, it puts into daylight a lot of the fissures and the, the gaps that we see in society to begin with. So, I mean, our, just to give a couple of examples, our case rates and our death rates are highest in some of the poorest parts of the city. Um, that's a combination of access to healthcare, folks being in unstable housing, more likely to be in you know jobs where they might be exposed, uh, maybe have higher rates of pre-existing conditions and things like that. You know, I think regional government has been a challenge in the Kansas City area for a long time. Before COVID, we were working on some economic development and housing policy work. We were trying to get better coordinated with some of our suburban jurisdictions. So, you know, the challenges we're having with COVID on that now are new, but actually it's a continuation of a pattern we've seen in other ways. Um, and then I think similarly, you know, sort of the difficulties with trying to get support from the state and federal government for what we're trying to do here. I mean, that's been the case for a while in Kansas City. Um, the city passed a minimum wage increase um, in 2016 that was essentially superseded by the state legislature. So even though the majority of Kansas City citizens voted for it, the legislature came in and said that cities cannot actually raise their own minimum wage. Um, that comes back to Merle's earlier point about it's interesting when we talk about local control and what that means. Another relevant point, Kansas City is the only city in the country whose police department is not under local control. Um, it's uh, actually run by a governor-appointed board of police commissioners, and that's an artifact of actually Pendergrass era, who was a political boss in Kansas City in the 30s and 40s, um, but corruption. Um, the mayor is actually one of the five commissioners, but the other four are appointed by the governor. Um, all of which is a way of saying, I think COVID is sort of, it basically seeps into all the cracks you see in society and then makes them bigger, right? A lot of what we're seeing is, is just that pattern playing out. So I think it just highlights the need to try and fix some of those structural problems to begin with, because whenever you have a crisis, whether it's economic or health, or in this case, both, it just ends up deepening their existing cracks. So would you say that a reform is in place or maybe replace the entire system? You know, I think replacing the entire system is, is tough because what system do you mean? Who are you replacing it? I think reforms are, there's things you can do though. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that it has been heartening is trying to see, you know, like there's just one example is we've been able to invest a little bit more in public health. And I hope that's something that will continue is sort of understanding the public health is a long-term investment that helps protect and actually grow the economy um, in cities. If your citizens are healthier, then they're able to be more productive and able to live more productive lives. And so I think maybe my hope at least is that the pandemic will sort of show long-term some of the, what you can get by investing in some of those long-term solutions that maybe are a little bit more painful or at least not the results aren't immediately present, but that can have fruits down the road. I mean, I think the restaurants are a great example of that, right? I mean, there's sort of the short-term pain in shutting down restaurants, but if you're able to do that, the hope is that the economy will actually recover as a whole faster. And so I'm hoping that we can move towards more of that kind of thinking where we're trying to solve the structural problems rather than focusing on quick fixes or some of those band-aids that don't actually solve the, the root causes of things. Yeah, no, I think that was a, a nice way to put it. I mean, I think some of these ideas have been pointed out by academics, right? 
And so one hopes that maybe these now make it into substantial policy changes moving forward, which was, I think was a nice way of actually bringing us to a close and to circle back to, as I said, some of our first conversations we had on this podcast were with academics talking about similar issues. And I think it's good to hear that people in policy places are thinking about some similar changes. So with that, I wanted to thank you so much, AJ. Always good to talk to you. Um, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This was fun. Yeah, thanks so much. So I thought even though AJ was telling us about modern case study of Kansas City and 2020, I still thought the discussion actually illuminated some of the questions and issues I have at least with our pre-modern field of studies, really. Yeah, I thought the conversation was really quite fun, actually, in a, a very different direction than we've gone in you know the last few months. And so I think that was a really nice way forward. And and as you said, yeah, I mean, we've talked about local experience. And I think the two things that I realized were number one, how different every locality is really just in terms of as AJ laid out the complicated governance of his region of the country, we should say. And the second, you know, is, as he said, the national plans that require really localized, contingent, communal responses, right? So even if you put a law into place to change something, how much or as little something changes because of that law is pretty important. To me, the, maybe the most shocking part of this interview was the extent of decentralization in Kansas City, right? So all these semi or partially overlapping jurisdictions trying to somehow formulate policy that would make sense to your area in your jurisdiction, but also wouldn't be too different from all the neighboring jurisdictions because that would essentially just be loopholes people could exploit. Yeah. I mean, aside from obviously AJ being an old friend of mine, I knew this situation in terms of at bare minimum, Kansas and Missouri, and then the complications within Missouri, because he's talked about this to me a number of times. So I knew that would completely blow your mind, Lee. So that's why I thought AJ would be a great person to have on, just so you could see one situation and how complex it really is. Right. So in essence, AJ and people in, in his position don't only have to deal with COVID or, and try to resolve COVID or treat COVID as best as they can. They also have to essentially bridge all these differences with, again, the neighboring counties in his case. Yeah. And one thing I imagine that's pretty big there that we didn't talk about, but you can see play out with how the CARES money was allocated potentially is your relationships with the people around you, right? So if you're getting money or aid or help or cooperation with someone is dependent upon the county that you're in, right? You better not have spent your time, if you were, say, a Democrat, going around talking trash about the county exec who might be a Republican or vice versa, right? So pissing someone off three years ago might really come back to haunt you. 
Yeah, and and it it also really showed how difficult governance is in such a situation. If you think about it, I mean, the way I used to think about cities is a mostly simple governance structure of which is kind of top down, I mean, at least cities in, in pre-modern times, right? But I think this shows that it's definitely not the case. Yeah, one could argue, Lay, that perhaps if you put in a single law about labor and economics in the capital city of, say, oh, I don't know, the Eastern Roman Empire, that perhaps it may not be implemented and enforced on the ground necessarily everywhere with very diverse constituencies. Right. And another thing that came to my mind, or, or that was interesting to me at least, was the strong emphasis on consensus. And this was the part of the discussion where we were talking about enforcement and enforcement is possible to do. I mean, the, the state, the city, the county has some kind of way to enforce its will, but they would not always want to do so because if they end up enforcing, by force that is, they might lose on the other side. They would might lose support. They might lose political capital, social capital in their organization or area. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that tells us a lot about how various places work on the ground. And so I think that's a perhaps a note we can use moving forward in future interviews as we talk people both past and present. Right. And I think to take that one step further, I think that when we think about, let's say, authoritarian countries or authoritarian systems, both in the present and in the past, I mean, it's very easy to think about this one person at the top just making decisions, calling the shots and defining policy or, or governance or law. But in reality, I mean, you do need people to accept that you're going to rule them, whether rule more democratically or rule as a more maybe authoritarian type figure. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. So as we conclude this episode, Lee, I've noticed you've become increasingly interested in vaccines and the idea of vaccines. So are you going to get a vaccine? And if so, are you going to try to be one of the early people or how are you going to make it happen? So I would remind listeners that about a week and a half ago, I had a class in which we discussed Outbreak, the movie Outbreak, in which they essentially make a vaccine in like maybe two hours or so and to just have as many doses of that, that vaccine as they needed. And that kind of solves the entire situation. Obviously, a very unrealistic, but at least makes for a happy ending in that movie. So to answer your question, I think personally, I would get vaccinated at the end. It would not be a priority for me because I don't feel my day-to-day -day life is substantially different at this point. Until things really open up, which is not something that's going to depend on me and me getting vaccinated, I don't think I'll get back to normal. So yes, I mean, I will get vaccinated, but I think there are other people who are probably more concerned about this than I am and probably need it more than I do at this point. So I'm not, I'm not going to rush or like stand in line to get vaccinated or anything like that. What about you? I'm probably about at the same viewpoint as that, right? I think now that we have a, or going to have 
a new administration, I'll have some trust that the vaccine won't be problematic, we'll say. But, you know, we'll see how this rolls out. We'll see where it rolls out. You know, my lifestyle, as you said, has allowed me to stay at home, work from home, do this podcast from home. <laughs> so I think I would certainly probably get one at this point, but I think the rollout and how it's all going to function. I mean, one curious thing I'll be very interested to see is, you know, will people just stop wearing masks now if they get vaccinated? Are they going to have a big like V on their chest that they carry around like a certificate? I mean, that'll be an interesting debate. I think in Contagion in the movie, if we're mentioning movies, I think they have a bracelet or something in which they, they have to show to get into shopping malls or something. Yeah, considering that it's unclear that, you know, we have the logistics of the vaccine itself worked out, the chances of us also attaching a electronic bracelet <laughs> to that vaccine seems dubious to problematic, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I would actually doubt that anything formal, I mean, that there would be some kind of formal discrimination between people who have been vaccinated and people who have not been vaccinated. I mean, if you think about this, right? So people who have had COVID and recovered from COVID, they're, I mean, maybe not 100% vaccinated or 100% immune to COVID, but they're mostly immune. I mean, there have been a few cases in which people got sick again. But at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I remember reading and, and hearing quite a lot about from a theoretical perspective of people saying that, yes, people would actually want to get sick because if, once they get sick, they can walk around and, and care much less and be less afraid of getting infected again. But that obviously has not been the case. And having been sick with COVID hasn't really helped you in any way, any formal way at least. You'd still need to wear a mask, at least in my country. Yeah, I'm interested to see what happens, I guess. We can revisit this topic in a few months, Lee, and see how we're feeling and what's happened. I'm sure we will, yeah. So I guess that we can probably conclude this episode on this rather hopeful note of a vaccine being at least somewhere over the horizon, moving towards us at, at some speed. So at this point, we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding this podcast. And of course, thanks to our regular sound editor, Cameron Chertavian, and our regular webmaster, Veridra Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and maybe if the bar in the jurisdiction next door is open, perhaps don't visit it.